Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five word speeches. It's nice to be nice. All up in your feed. Our greatest contribution to mankind. Try stealing this content, Google. Here's your host, Webby's executive director, David Michelle Davies. Today on the show, not a winner, not a judge, but someone who's played a huge behind-the-scenes technical role in honoring the best of the internet. As many of you may know, we just announced the winners for the 21st annual Webby's. We wrapped three weeks of people's voice voting. We had some serious traffic this year with 6 million unique people visiting the voting site. Some really incredible numbers that we've never seen before. But to make sure we never go down and we're able to handle those tens of thousands of concurrent visitors, we have to do a lot of testing. We do a lot of retesting, too. All that to make sure that our systems are stable. Our guest today is Rajesh Anandan, co-founder of Ultra Testing, a QA testing company that employs almost exclusively people with autism and Asperger's syndrome, and a bit of a secret weapon for us here at the Webby Awards. And guess what? Using Ultra is one of the ways we're able to handle so much traffic without even a second of downtime. It's an incredible neurodiverse company that in some ways is mission-driven, but in other ways is just good business. We talked about how Rajesh hires and employs some of the best quality assurance testers in the industry, how he measures and manages workforce happiness, and we discuss what he calls the autism advantage. Enjoy my conversation with Rajesh Anandan. All right, so I'm so excited to have you here. One of the, uh, and I'm not blowing smoke here. This is really yeah, true. Sure. I'm not. Let me tell you this. Um, one of the things that I've been really excited about this podcast for is because, and we say it in some of the stuff when we've been telling people, um, there's a lot of stories that we learn about that I feel like other people don't really know, you know? And you are you and Ultra are like one of those stories. Like for the first time I met you and talked to you and found out what, about what you guys are doing, I was like, this is just like the best thing ever. And you guys are such good people and doing such good work that this is like a big part for us is that be able to, there's so many people doing stuff like this that is often under the radar. It's like, it's exciting for us to get a chance to just share it even with a little bit of fewer people. You shared it with a lot of people already. You're well-known and very successful, so I don't mean in that way, but just like we're pumped to have you. So thank you for coming. Well, I'm psyched to be here, and this is my first podcast. Really? I'm very nervous. Wow. Well, you have a very good radio voice or oh, podcast thanks. Thanks. voice, I think. Yeah. So tell us about um, – let's start at the beginning. You know, tell us about Ultra. Um, tell us about what Ultra does. How did you think of it? How did you come up with that idea? So uh, I can't take any credit for any part of Ultra, really. Um, Ultra Testing is a neurodiverse tech company. We specialize in agile software testing, which is 
uh, unless you're a software developer uh, or the webbies and you care about quality, uh, you've probably never heard of it. Uh, but we built Ultra uh, as a company with a very simple mission to prove that neurodiversity, including autism, could be a competitive advantage in business. And that was just, that was it. Um, the origin story, if you will, is a little bit hazy, but it, it goes back uh, probably to the late 90s, early 2000s. My wife uh, is a, used to be a child psychologist, and she had a, a community mental health clinic in Oakland. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, she saw a spike of kids coming into her clinic who were on the spectrum. And she was doing individual therapy with them and their parents uh, and started to do group work just to help kids develop social relational skills, um, which were important. And she came home from work one day and just said in passing, you know, we spend all this time working with these kids on stuff they may never be good at, but it's important. It's important for survival. But we spend no time nurturing the things they're already amazing at. And that simple idea stuck with me and, you know, takes me a while to do anything. So it took me well over a decade to start to explore this notion of a concentration of abilities that might be hidden. Um, and I went to a friend of mine who runs a, a due diligence shop and um, had had a team of folks basically look at different pools of talent that might have a perceived, quote, disability. So being hearing impaired or visually impaired or being uh, neurodiverse or autistic or um, dyslexic and look for evidence that there might be heightened abilities that were more common in this particular population than the general population, and then try to tie that back to in-demand skills in the workforce today. So you, you started not with just saying, we think that people who have autism could be really good testers. You started with, there's a really interesting concept out here that there's people who have what might be considered disabilities, but might also have special skills that are not being thought of in that way. So you started in a broader way and sort of narrowed down. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's sort of my management consulting past that won't leave. <laughs> I sort of needed to just assess the market and understand what the opportunity was, um, because I you know I'd spent a bunch of time in in tech at Microsoft and then and doing just corporate strategy work and, and some private equity, and I switched over to the impact space, and I'd been working in nonprofits for a while. Um, and one thing that I do feel uh, very clear about in my head is job creation is not something that governments and nonprofits are necessarily equipped to do. It's something companies are equipped to do, and the only way it's going to happen if there's a real business case and imperative, commercial imperative to do it. Um, and so that that was the lens through which I was looking at this. And uh, anyway, so we, well, take me back to so before we take me back to the the part of the research, though. Yeah. So so what did you what did you find out about all these different types? Yeah. Of so so it turns out that if you are um, blind from birth, there's a decent chance that you can comprehend speech at 25 syllables a second versus eight syllables a second if you're sighted. Which, if you're doing audio transcription which now it's going to get automated, but like medical transcription, a couple billion dollar industry, you're just going to be faster and more accurate if you're blind. And we discovered this small nonprofit in southern India that actually was doing medical transcription with a team of blind, blind transcribers. If you are um, hearing impaired or mostly deaf from birth again, 
you know, your brain has time to rewire, similarly if you're, if you're blind, and there's a decent chance that you can detect slower motion and have better peripheral vision, which if you're doing video editing, kind of a good thing. There's a, there used to be a deaf-run again, nonprofit in the UK that did video editing. Um, and similarly, if you're on the autism spectrum, and, and autism is a spectrum, it's a wide spectrum of interests and abilities, um, but there was a decent chance that you might be particularly able to detect subtle differences in patterns or focus on uh, a task for extended periods of time or have extreme reasoning abilities. These are all really interesting things in a number of fields. And autism really affected the biggest community relative to some of these other um, other uh, differences that we had looked at. Three and a half million Americans are on the spectrum. 1% of the entire world's population is on the spectrum. Every year, 50,000 young adults on the spectrum turn 18. And yet, 85% of folks who are autistic are unemployed or underemployed. There was a recent study that looked at young college graduates on the spectrum. 85% were unemployed, which is an incredible challenge for us as a society um, and one that you know, wasn't necessarily going to be solved by any one organization. And as, at Ultra, look, we think, we'd like to believe we're the best software testing and quality assurance company in the world, and, and we have some data to back, that, back up that claim. But even if we grow into the biggest software testing company in the world, we're employing a few thousand people. We're not going to solve this problem. And so our simple theory of change was if we're going to make a dent in, in the bigger challenge facing this incredibly talented and diverse community, we've got to prove that there's a real commercial business advantage to tapping into this talent pool. And so that was the simple idea behind Ultra. And it wouldn't have happened without my co-founder who, you know, I'm the consultant, he's the entrepreneur. And I was describing to um, Art Sheckman, we were roommates in college, we're both engineers by training, and he actually stayed an engineer, and he's sort of our nerd marine in the company. Um, but he'd built a couple software and IT companies. And I was describing the, the attributes that we one might find among an autistic talent pool and over dinner one day and he said listen what you're describing sounds like the perfect profile for a software tester i can never find good software testers or testing companies for my software dev shops and if you think you can find me three people who fit that profile i'll put them to work next week and that's what we did the next week, we went to uh, um, A-Step, which is now called Integrate. It's a nonprofit that works with adults on the spectrum and large employers to set up um, employment initiatives. Um, and their CEO, Marsha Shiner, was kind enough to take a meeting. You know, here are a couple MIT engineers saying, hey, we have this idea. Um, but she made time for us, and, you know, and she had... Uh, a colleague with her, Michael Carley, who then ran CRASP, which is the world's largest advocacy group for adults with Asperger's. Um, and they, you know, listened to us very patiently. And Michael said, okay, so I don't really understand software testing and what you guys are talking about, but my community has two challenges. Love and relationships, work and opportunity. You guys think, you seem serious and sincere, so if you think you can solve one of those, I'm behind you. 
Right. And that was it. You know, we, we, we didn't know what to do about the love thing, but we thought we knew something about the work thing. Two engineers didn't know to do yeah. about the love thing. Okay. Yeah, well, it's sad. It's sad. Um, you know a lot about this community. Is The current understanding, tell me if this is right, is that the you mentioned 50,000 like high school graduating adults having autism, 18-year-olds uh, uh, a year. That's not, it, it's, it was once perceived as like a number that was growing a lot, right? Now, is it true that the general consensus is that it's actually not necessarily growing a ton? It's just more recognized. People are more aware of it. There's a description of it. Is that, is that right now? Is that sort of how so, people are looking at it? So the diagnosis rates haven't necessarily been uh, increasing in the last few years. They've actually gone up quite a bit in the last couple decades. Um, there are lots of theories around why is that? Is it, you know, more awareness and better diagnosis or actually an increase in prevalence? I don't have a point of view on it we, other uh, than to say that, you know, it affects at least a percent of the population, possibly more, which then is a meaningful part of the society we live in. And the biggest challenge for facing us as a society is to acknowledge that, you know, the task at hand is not to... Um, try to get uh, folks on the spectrum to figure out how to fit into this society as we've constructed it because it's by no means perfect. So let's redesign it so it actually works for everyone. Right. And that's and that part of the, like some of the language that you're using around like neurodiversity, that's a big part of that shift, right? Which is that, and you talked about at the top, it's not a disability, it's different, essentially, right? And that really recognizing that people are different and have different genetics and different neurodiversity, so to speak. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, neurodiversity as a term was first used in the 90s, and it's starting to become better known and, and better understood now. And it's simply uh, acknowledging that there is a wide range of cognitive um, abilities and processing models and, and brain types and thinking and learning styles. And it, they are simply differences. Right. And depending on the context, one particular difference might be a advantage or a challenge. And so if you kind of limit the context to a single way of being, a simple, single set of expectations, then sure, if you have a bunch of differences that don't fit that, then you're constantly at a disadvantage. And in a way, that's a large part of what's happening with individuals who are on the spectrum having a tough time finding jobs where, you know, the rules have been written in a particularly poor way that don't really work to begin with. Um, but they, they don't really work for many folks who are autistic. Right. And so, I mean, you're talking about we need to, like, redesign the world to accommodate more of these people. If you're going to hire people... So, so actually, no. No, no okay. I, I, the, the word accommodation um, is, is a little bit of a um, red flag Fair inside enough. our company because that assumes that uh, the, the, there's a need for some kind of benevolent action to help someone. Um, it's really not that. It's just there are there's an incredible talent pool and potential that is not being used, that we are missing out as a society. It's no different from the debates around gender diversity, that 
I can't believe we're still having these debates. <laughs> you know, we're missing out as a society by not being able to tap into this talent pool. And really, it's less about accommodation, particularly at Ultra, where, you know, we are now a 50-plus person company where 75% of our team are autistic. So for us, it's not about figuring out how to have autistic team members adapt to our organization because there is no organization without our autistic colleagues. It's really how do we design an organization from the ground up so that the full diversity of brain types and thinking styles and learning styles can flourish together and obviously as a for-profit business, be efficient and effective and deliver a service that's better than the rest of the market. Yeah, so how did you do it? I mean, do you feel like you've done it? Have you created a company that, that yeah, works I mean, in that respect? <laughs> we, we're trying. Okay. We're trying. So when we started, you know, we had this notion um, of building a neurodiverse company. There was no blueprint for what that meant. There wasn't even a rough sketch. Um, we didn't know any better. So we just started doing it. Uh, we ran it as an experiment, really, um, with a small team of three folks that we worked with, um, Grasp and, and ASTEP or Integrate to recruit for about nine months, doing QA for my co-founder Art's other company, software company, Elephant Ventures. And it was incredible because we were able to have three folks who'd never done QA before, uh, get trained up pretty quickly, and just start working and deliver a level of quality that was dramatically better than just you know, hiring a typical team of software testers. And so we launched Ultra as its own company in 2013 uh, in the summer. So we're a little over three and a half years old. Um, that first year, we were a team of five. The next year, we were a team of 12. The next year, we were a team of 25. Last year, we were a team of 50. So we, we are growing um, and we're learning. So we've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we do, as an organization, embrace not knowing because, no, you know, there is no path to follow. What does it actually mean to build a neurodiverse company? I think the, the easier stuff were the things that were obvious from the beginning, where how do you actually recruit autistic talent, right? So if 85% of the talent pool is unemployed or underemployed, there's no work history. So resume is pretty much useless. Um, if many of the recruits are not going to shine in an unscripted, fluid social interaction, i.e. a job interview, that's not particularly useful either. So if you throw those tools out, what do you do? You know, and so we just had to figure it out. At so this what, point... So how do you, how do you find well, an interview? And, so, not interview, how do you find and evaluate what yeah, they so, will be good at it? So first, a tirade on <laughs> interviews and resume screens. So there's actually now a fair bit of evidence... Um, that point to a low or zero correlation between years of work experience or degrees and certifications and on-the-job performance. Same for kind of these subjective interview assessments that still are the hallmark of recruiting in most organizations in the face of a mounting body of evidence that say that these are not effective tools. For us, we couldn't use them, so we were forced to look at other things. And so... The first thing we did was define the person we're looking for without relying on history. So instead of saying, you know, we want someone who's got a bachelor's in computer science or three to five years experience in QA doing this kind of QA using these tool sets, et cetera, all of that stuff, um, we 
we're forced to actually describe the profile of the person in very concrete terms. So for a new software tester at Ultra, um, there are 25 attributes we look for. It's a combination of cognitive abilities like pattern recognition and logical reasoning, um, stuff that we think you need, you, know, you need to be able to do, um, and behavioral traits or character traits, you know, coachability, perseverance, learning agility, um, and innate interest. You know, do you deeply care about how software works? Because if you do, then you're going to love spending all your days trying to figure out how a system works or how an app works, how a platform might function, and figuring out where that system might break. How do you, I mean, do you have to design tests specifically for each one of those 25 attributes? Yeah, so we, um, we have an eight-step recruiting process where uh, it's a combination of like an online questionnaire, essays, uh, actual tests and assessments. And then at the end, we have a week of simulated work. And it's all remote. We're an entirely remote company. We do have an office space uh, that we use on Fridays in New York City. Sure. Uh, but, but it's really uh, built and designed to be a remote company. So each step of that process essentially is designed to validate a number of those attributes. Uh, so we don't have 25 steps. We have eight. And the cognitive abilities are easier to assess, right? You want to... You wanna, uh, assess for pattern recognition. Well, we have a two-hour pattern recognition test. That's and these easy. are like, just so people can understand, it's like puzzles and logic problems? Or Yeah, so the pattern recognition stuff is really just, um, are you able to tell the difference between, let's say, a series of images? Okay. And then equally importantly, can you actually articulate those differences concisely and clearly in a manner that someone else can easily follow. Because that's a core skill of someone who is testing software. Sure. is not just unearthing the issue, but also describing it, it and communicating it in a way that can be repeated. Um, the harder stuff to assess really are more um, the behavioral traits or the character traits. So coachability. You know, can someone listen to and act on feedback? Mm -hmm. um, you can't just give someone a test and see how they do. So that's what the week of simulated work at the end of our recruiting is for, where we can actually give someone feedback and actually observe how they behave. Were they able to listen and hear that feedback without being defensive? Were they able to then internalize it and change how they behave the next time this happens, right? Or learning agility. Can you quickly learn new tools? Well, that's easy enough. We're going to give you a new tool that you haven't used before and see how quickly you can master it and how well you can apply it in a new context. It, you know, it's interesting. It, it all totally makes sense, right? It's so logical, everything you're describing. When you actually take a step back, though, and think about you guys threw out the window so much information that so much of the world is based on, right, which is... Where did they come from and what did they do before and who else were they around and what other signals say that this person, you know, a lot of cultural signals that we use for hiring, for deciding who we be friends with. You're basically saying none of those matter. We're going to we're going to find out whether they can do it based on this set of tests. Right. It's really different. It seems like you totally figured it out. So now it like it makes a ton of sense. So but at the time it must have been I, I would just imagine that. You must have still wanted to go back and be like, oh, well, well, you know, who are their friends or where do they come from or any of that. You know what I mean? Like it's it's really letting like what's that expression? Um, flying without a net, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So the you know, we're humans, so <laughs> really don't. It's tough for for humans to let things go and, and change how we how we behave. And 
yeah, letting go of the the interview. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's the primary tool for evaluating someone's potential um, wasn't easy. And we kept, you know, it took us really a couple years before we truly did put the interview in its place, where we used that interview not to assess abilities or interest or personality, things like fit. You know, we, we don't have that in our vocabulary. Like, what does that even mean? Um, but really use the interview for very specific things where we're trying to more deeply understand someone's interests that they've already expressed in writing, which is a more comfortable form of, of expression for many, many of our team. Um, but yeah, the first time we did this um, with uh, help from Grasp and, and uh, Integrate, uh, we posted it, you know, we wrote a job description together and that was itself was informative because we had to, again, write that job description without referencing past experience, et cetera, but also understanding that, that we might have quite a few folks uh, who might not apply because they didn't meet one of 12 requirements. Right. Because, because if you've got and, and again, this is not to say everyone on the spectrum is going to take things literally. But if enough folks in my talent pool that I'm trying to recruit are going to actually take that set of requirements at face value. And really, why wouldn't you? Right. If I list 12 requirements, why would I assume that only 11 are serious and, and you don't have to have one? Um, sure. So it, it forced us to actually be more disciplined about how we communicate and what we say and uh, root out a lot of the ambiguity and fudge and kind of um, uh, laziness, if I can call it that, that actually is fairly commonplace. Yeah, right? yeah so, that's so interesting. That, I mean, it's on some level, the applicant pool is really holding your description much more accountable than other applicant pools probably do. Right? Yeah, like and there's there's no embellishment of the truth, yeah. at least from what we've seen in 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 terms of um, the recruits coming in that, that we've seen, uh, which, you know, that's not a great way to go through a traditional recruiting process if you're just going to be honest <laughs> and not, not slightly exaggerate what you've done or, you know, what you're capable of. Uh, and again, all of that works in a context where there's this very subjective interview thing that happens and a very, 
inaccurate um, assessment then based on, on that interaction. So we just don't do that. So what do you think? I mean, so now sort of on the other side, if you will, when you look at the way, you know, other applicant pools and other types of jobs and, and so forth are being hired for, what do you think? Is it like the whole world is doing it the wrong way? I mean, do you, you must have a totally different perspective now on that process just yeah, across, so, across and, all industries. Yeah, so so I think, you know, um, engineering jobs, like software developers, usually like there's, there's a, the idea of a job test. It's an old... It's not a new concept. Sure. It's been around for a while. I get the Quora alerts. Right, about like you, what you it's like to take the Google tests all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's not new. It's just in any job, even in non-technical jobs. And really, before we look outside, we've got to look at ourselves. Um, and we, so we, we just, you know, we uh, let's say when we hired a, a, a salesperson, um, we started the process without actually. Uh, sort of taking our own medicine on this. And we, you know, we had a couple interviews and they were like, well, wait a minute, this makes no sense. And so we actually went back, redesigned it, and it's less extensive. It's not eight steps, it was four steps. But we started with an online questionnaire before you talk to anyone. And then we actually constructed two different job tests that we thought would get to the core of a couple of the skills or abilities we were looking for and then had the interview. And that made a world of difference because that interview is so subjective and, and you know, you most humans will form an opinion in the first couple seconds. Um, but if you have a, a, a set of data that you can't argue with before you go into that interview, um, it does make it a little bit more effective. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the pros and cons of having a workforce uh, that is 75, 80% autistic. Yeah. So um, the first thing is that the uh, kind of uh, HR handbook uh, (laughs) doesn't really work. Um, So as a remote team, you know, we've got to do a lot of work and put in a lot of time and effort to make sure that we are cohesive and we're functioning and we, we... uh, know each other, we understand each other, uh, and we can work effectively together. Um, when we have, when you have a team where um, there may be any number of uh, triggers of stress or anxiety, it could be a certain behavior, or it could be um, uh, audio signals or, or visual stimuli. It could be anything, and really, you know, I make no judgments. I just assume that it could be anything. And that's the, that's the reality because even on our team, uh, you know, with 50-plus people where the majority are on the spectrum, um, there is no one answer to any question of what's most challenging or, or what's, what's your strength kind of stuff, which then means that we have to assume that at any given point in time, anyone on the team might be experiencing stress or might be experiencing anxiety. And so we then need to be hyper-vigilant of monitoring well-being. So that, that's the first kind of... Um, so how do you do that? How do you monitor well-being? Well, we, have a, we actually have a daily, um, we, you know, we call it Smile Corp. The team is affectionately named uh, the Slack bot that monitors team well-being. So at the end of every work... Do you guys make your own Slack bot for that? Uh, no, we use poly.ai. Okay. Uh, it's, fanta- it's very customizable, and we can name it. Um, but we basically took one of their basic uh, sort of standard set of polls and 
tweaked it to, to work for us. And every day at the end of the workday, one gets a, a, a private message with a poll um, and the input's obviously anonymous, but the output, the aggregate results are public. So every day we have a transparent reading of well-being of the company and we have a 50-60% response rate every day on those polls, so it's a good enough sample. And we basically cycle through 14 dimensions um, that to us is sort of defines well-being. So, some, you know, some of it is, and they're all phrased um, to have a Likert score response, like strongly disagree to strongly agree. So g- give us some examples. Yeah, so some of it, it's very basic. Like it's, I'm happy at work, or uh, my team communicates effectively, or my projects follow a consistent process. Consistency is really important for us. Uh, or my manager cares about my well-being. Or my peers listen to my opinions. So there's a bunch of stuff that really are general dimensions of a good, well-functioning workplace. And it's, it's anonymized. It's anonymized. So what happens? But like, so if it if all of a sudden, you know, I don't know what percentage it goes down. Let's yeah, say it's, if yeah, people yeah. aren't so, happy. What do you What do you do? Yeah. You don't, you're not. I assume the bot is set up in a way where you can't actually see who said. Yeah, no, it's important that it's anonymous because then people are more likely to be honest. So a few things. If we see, and usually, you know, we don't have a lot of strongly disagrees on these statements, but if we do see um, a number of days where there's a couple folks who are clearly not happy, it does a few things. One, it actually puts everyone on high alert. Oh, because everybody sees the results. Everybody sees the results. So everybody's aware that hey, you know what? There's probably someone on the team that's not doing well. And that does make us just more attentive. So it's not just like, oh my, the responsibility is on Rajesh to fix this problem. No, it's everybody's job, right? right. We owe it to each other. We're on the same team. But it does put, it makes everyone more attuned to the possibility that someone on the team is not doing well and they're not speaking up for whatever reason. We've now had two separate instances where that indeed was the case. And it just made the team more aware. And one of a colleague was able to actually surface this issue. Um, and, you know, it, and, and the fix was very simple, by the way, in both cases. But if it had gone unaddressed, because we're remote, we're not sitting next to each other, we can't really see how we're doing. Uh, I mean, we generally have video calls, but outside of that, we don't really know how we're and, doing. And, and please tell me if I'm wrong, I, I think if you were going to look at sort of the the attributes and the, the things that are more difficult, you would say that social interaction is de- generally considered a more difficult skill for people who are autistic, right? That is true for many. For it's many. not universal, not everybody, right? It's course. not universal. So like... I'd say, you know, our community manager, our recruiter is a woman on the spectrum. Like, she's our community manager, you know, and she's outward facing. And it's probably fair to say that um, verbal communication, sort of live interactions uh, in person, are likely to be more stressful than communicating online. Right. That's fair. But you've, and I'm just trying to point out, because I'm just sort of blown away now that I've, like, internalized what you've done, is you've, you've set up a system, essentially, that... Um, that is like an alternative and better way to identify some of these things that might yeah. not surface otherwise. Yeah. Right? So yeah. So so generally, this stuff doesn't surface in any organization. Right. It's just in our organization, the consequences of not addressing okay more significant stress or anxiety are more serious. 
So the other thing, and, and the, the, the operating assumption for us is if someone is experiencing stress or anxiety, they're not going to speak up. That's not true for everyone, but if we design the system for that case, for that scenario, then it's going to work for everyone, and that's actually what's happened. So we've created a number of different release while, you know, feedback loops where if someone is actually has something to say or it's not going well or whatever it is, there are multiple easy channels to have that message filter through and allow everyone in the team to be... Uh, armed with that information, so because the answers also aren't going to come just from a supervisor, yeah. or you know, how are so you've been doing this for four four years now. Yep. How is the rest of the world doing? Like, how are other companies doing in either bringing in and hiring and recruiting people of neurodiversity? How, like, do you, is it is this something that people are be, companies are becoming better at? Are you guys Absolutely. still the only people doing? Like, how's that? No. Going? So the, there's been particularly in the last two to three years, there's been a number of really high-profile initiatives that big companies have started on. SAP made an announcement um, a, a couple of years ago that by, you know, in the next decade, they wanted 1% of their global workforce to be on the spectrum. And and that was a very bold statement to make for a publicly listed it's company. A lot, of, a lot of people work at SAP. And, and it's, a, you know, they're at a massive scale, 70,000, 80,000 employees. So if they are able to meet that goal, that's fantastic. But more importantly, you know, SAP making that statement sends a convincing signal out to their peers, but, but really every big employer and so we've seen it's great for you guys too, right? I mean, it's communicating and, to and the it validates that, that you know what you're we're doing is exactly totally yeah, be done. absolutely. Yeah. Um, Microsoft made made an announcement last year, along as you know, launching a, a similar initiative around employing talent on the spectrum. And it's not just in technology. Ernst and Young just made a similar announcement. Um, there's a number of uh, banks who've started to look at this area as well. A uh, number of uh, retail and logistics companies. So. It's not an, you know, it's it's not a, um, let's say, a, a unique idea. I think the idea is now coming to life in a number of different ways, and it's not just big companies, right? So there's a number of smaller initiatives, many nonprofits, but also, uh, you know, now starting, we're, we're starting to see actual companies as well. Um, and it's not just companies either, like the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, started uh, around the same time uh, we did, and we had some early conversations with them just to learn from each other. Um, they set up a special intelligence unit, Unit 9900, I think they were called, initially to hire autistic analysts to um, review aerial photography to spot you know, stuff they were looking for. Right. Um, they've since expanded it to a number of different fields. There is an animation studio called Beautiful Minds in L.A. that started out as a, a training program to t train autistic um, talent to be animators. They have since evolved, and they're actually doing work for some of the big studios. So it's a wide range of fields where an autistic individual might fit into. And again, it's 1% of the world's population. So it's yeah. not just you know QA or engineering or technical stuff. Tell me about, so you actually have an initiative called uh, Different Better? Yes. So it's called, you want to tell me a bit about it? It's a site. It used to be, for a while, I, I've been to it before, a couple of years ago, I've been recently, hadn't been recently. Uh, it used to be, you had people in your company who were testers talking about what it was like 
to be them essentially and to do testing, right? Yep. And no, what, absolutely. And what is it? What is it today? So um, different better is short for our differences as individuals make us better together. It's basically our core belief as a company. And we launched it last year really as a, as a, uh, a place for our team to have a voice because what we're doing is, you know, it's, it's interesting. So we, we get a fair bit of press, uh, but often the, the, the story is not the story we want told. The story in the media around autism usually is negatively framed um, and it reinforces a, a very s- sort of narrow set of stereotypes about what it means to be on the spectrum. And really, we don't think in order to tell an, a story about autism, you have to start with, oh, you know, meet Jeremy. Jeremy's not great at social interactions. Now, don't you feel really bad for Jeremy? Right. We don't think you need to start there and then say, but Jeremy got a job and isn't it great? That There is a place for that. And I don't mean to... Uh, minimize the challenges of what it might mean to be on the spectrum. I'm not on the spectrum. I don't know what that is. I can only imagine, and it can be really tough. Um, but you bring up, but, I think, a, an overall really important point, which is there's so much language out there around these issues, um, and it's most people who aren't involved with it all the time don't necessarily even know what all the different words and signals might mean to someone who is on the spectrum. Yep don't have a great vocabulary for talking about it, do have only stereotypes in their head. Maybe they don't have a family, you know, whatever it might yep. be. Um, you know, and it's it's to get to the place where you guys are, and I think that, you know, where people want to go, you have to confront these, yeah, these issues, and, right? You have to confront how people talk about it and, and, and what the stereotypes are. And Absolutely, and I think you have to have, um, you, you have to have a diversity of voices as part of that. And so... Different Better in its last incarnation was an attempt uh, to give our teams a voice, to be able to tell our own stories in our own voices about what makes us different, how those differences affect how we experience the world as individuals, and, and, and why those differences actually help us be better at what we do. And so that was what we did last year. And really, we wanted to talk to ourselves. <laughs> and we would have aside a bunch of the folks on the team recorded videos and, and these stories. Um, and we we felt really good about it. And, and then our partners really embraced that message. And um, a bunch of groups, uh, advocacy groups and others in the autism community embraced that message because it rang true. Um, and this year, we wanted to take it a little bit further and evolve it from we want to tell you our own stories about what makes us different to we want you to experience our differences. And we worked with Tribal, who um, are a fantastic digital agency who are an ultra client, um, and they um, committed to doing the work with us pro bono. You know, we're a QA company. We, we don't <laughs> hire, ag- you know, top-tier digital agencies to QA build. QA companies don't typically hire no, global no. advertising agencies. Yeah, no, we either. don't. Yeah. Uh, but they've been fantastic. And, um, and we gave them this uh, brief of, hey, we want the world to be able to experience what makes us different. And we had the seed of an idea of, what about, could we build micro experiences that, that um, showcased some of the abilities that are common among our team? Um, and so differentbetter.us is, is where this stuff li- lives. There are three 
kind of games or, or challenges, I should say. Each one has been inspired by a real human on our team um, and, and showcases a particular heightened ability. So there's a, um, a challenge around uh, perception, uh, which really is around pattern recognition or a challenge around perspective or systems thinking and, and one around um, logic and logical reasoning. Uh, and and there's, they're fun, they're engaging. Um, hopefully you'll get hooked on one of them. Um, and, and the simple idea is we wanted to find an easy and engaging way to draw you in and have you use your brain um, to try to accomplish a task. And then at the end of that challenge, there's a reveal with a voiceover from the, the actual team member uh, and an animation of how he or she would visualize the solution to that challenge. So you're able to literally see how someone who might think differently than you do or be differently wired would solve or accomplish the same task. And the point of the whole thing is to leave you with a simple um, insight of the benefit to your team or your organization of having differently wired brains working together. Do you guys consider yourself a mission-driven company? Yeah. Like I, I mean, I know that at the end of the day, you're, you're not going to try and sell the services based on who's doing the work. You want to sell it based on, like, this is the best software yeah, testing company. So, we just happen to hire the people who are the best at this job. Yep. So we, we don't call ourselves a social enterprise. Right. Uh, we don't expect anyone to give us work because they believe in the mission. Right. We do think people will uh, take a meeting with us because they're yeah. interested in the mission. And in business terms, it shortens our sales cycle. Um, right? Because do you really want to take a call from a QA company? No, right, of right, course not. Nobody right. does. But would you take 15 minutes out of your day to hear out a QA company that's building a neurodiverse team? Maybe. Right. I might be curious. I might have a personal af affinity to that. Um, and ultimately, we want to be seen as the best software testing company in the world that happens to be neurodiverse. Because in order for us to live up to our mission of proving that neurodiversity is an advantage, we have to win. You got to be the um, best. We have to be the best at what we do. And we're already starting to look at adjacencies outside of QA. We're looking at, you know, cybersecurity, obviously, but data and analytics, um, very close um, adjacencies to the core skills and abilities of our team. Um, and an easy extension from what we do. And so at some point, you know, we might be more than a QA company. But today, that's what we are. And, and uh, once we have established ourselves as the best in that industry, we'll look elsewhere. Rajesh, thank you so much for coming on um, and telling us all about this. It's so fascinating. I'm, like, so inspired to, like, try and get your, your uh, some of your some of your HR practices and like have our own poll here just because it makes, it just like makes so much sense. Um, it's, you gotta be brave to do it cause you gotta get the feedback and a lot of people don't want to get the feedback, but really inspiring. I really well, thank you. It. Thank you for being our, you're like our secret ultra has always been our secret weapon. Hopefully it's not so much of a secret. Um, but you've always been our secret weapon, like the best testing we've ever had. So it's, it's been really great to see you guys grow up. Thank you so much. It's you're been great welcome. to have you. All right. Thank you so much to Rajesh for stopping by the studio. If you need any QA work, seriously, don't hesitate to reach out to Rajesh. Visit ultratesting.us. 
We were so impressed with their performance that we did a whole podcast about it. That's really saying something. Our producer this week is Ben Wagner. Editorial help from Nicole Ferraro. Show music is Straight West by Casket Club. And special thanks this week to Zachary Davies. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then.